Um, hello, everybody. And I know that this is a slightly later time than some of the usual talks, so it's really great to see so many of you who've come out. Um, I'm Trish Hiddleston, and I have the great pleasure uh, this evening of introducing an old friend and uh, colleague, Karen Langren, who is currently the Special Representative of the Secretary-General uh, for the UN Mission in Liberia, but has a long career having worked with UNHCR, with UNICEF. Um, she has worked with UN missions in Nepal, in Burundi, and now, of course, in Liberia. Um, she is an alum of LSE, so great to welcome you back, Karen. Um, Karen will speak for about half an hour or so, and then we'll have about half an hour for questions. Um, if anybody is interested, we have the uh, hashtag LSE Ebola there. Um, and I will just hand straight over to you, Karen. Thank you. Thank you very much, Trish. Thank you, everyone. Thank you to those of you who have the courage and confidence to sit in the front row, so close to someone traveling from West Africa. Uh, a senior British official in the region recently came back here to have a tooth looked at, and his dentist refused to see him. I'm told the Foreign Office had to intervene. So I assume everyone here this evening has a passport and then you'll know where the three most Ebola-affected countries are situated. But recently in Accra, I was told that Ghana's tourist industry has suffered due to Ebola. I was also told that South Africa's tourist industry has suffered due to Ebola. So I know the plural of anecdote is not data, especially here at the LSE. Uh, we'll get to the data in a minute, but what this also illustrates is one of the secondaries of Ebola, which is the extraordinary fear or Ebola psychosis that has been brought on by this episode. Along with the thousands of deaths, and it's approximately 5,000 in the region now, Ebola has had several secondary effects in Liberia. The almost immediate isolation of the country the loss of investor confidence, the economic impact deepened fears about a country that's still year after year described as fragile. What I want to talk about tonight is the period when Liberia seemed to be staring into an abyss, which was a six-week period or so from roughly the 25th of July. This is the period when it looked to many as if Liberia's gains since the war might be reversed. And I also want to look ahead to a possible silver lining that can be drawn from this experience. I don't plan to discuss the health response in a big way. There's been a lot of focus on that. But of course, that is a big part of regaining control of the situation. And while the Liberian data currently offer better news. It's too soon to sit back and be relieved. Uh, not only is Ebola still raging, but the underlying reasons for Liberia's fragility are largely unchanged. In August just three months ago, observers believed that Ebola could bring Liberia to the point of collapse. 
11 years after the Liberian conflict ended with a peace agreement and the departure of Charles Taylor, there was a real fear of a scenario, once again, in which things spun out of control. On September 9th, the Liberian Defence Minister told the UN Security Council that Ebola was a serious threat to Liberia's existence as a nation. What was it about Ebola and about Liberia that made this possibility of relapse seem so real? This slide shows the presence of Ebola to varying degrees across the country and the region, first in June on the left and then in August. We speak of a first and a second round of Ebola uh, in Liberia, although technically they were part of the same outbreak. The first round, the epicenter was in Lofa in the northeast, basically in that first deep red uh, splat bordering Guinea, behaved just as WHO said it would, that it would flare and then die, and that's what it did. But on May 29th, it came back. These borders are very porous, and it took hold in the capital with Ebola deaths accelerating around mid-June. WHO and CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, have conceded that they didn't see this coming, and they were slow to respond. No one had ever seen Ebola in a crowded urban setting. It became very clear in July and August that addressing Ebola on the one hand and maintaining Liberia's stability on the other were inseparable. Ebola generated fears that security would erode fast, and without a stable security environment, it was going to be doubly difficult to bring the spread of Ebola under control. Ebola went from a problem to a crisis in four days flat at the end of July. On the 25th, the world learned that Patrick Sawyer, infected with Ebola, had flown from Monrovia to Lagos, via Lome, where he died on the 24th, having set off an infection chain that took the lives of eight Nigerians. On July 26th, the charity Samaritan's Purse announced that two of its American staff had tested positive for Ebola. On the same day, the chief medical officer at Monrovia's leading hospital, Dr. Samuel Brisbane, died of Ebola. And on the 27th, health workers were attacked and their vehicle burned in Lofa County. So security problems had begun in earnest. There were violent protests when bodies of Ebola dead were left in the streets, sometimes for days on end. There was more violence against health workers when they came to decontaminate the houses of the dead. Rumors flew that the health workers with their bleach were spraying Ebola. Many Liberians simply refused to believe information coming from their government and claimed that Ebola was a ruse to obtain money from donors. Across the north of the country, another rumor spread that water wells were being poisoned and that this too was the work of the government. Angry mobs gathered where an Ebola treatment center was being expanded. A man set fire to part of the Ministry of Health to the main conference room, allegedly angered about the poor treatment of a relative suffering from Ebola. Long before the debacle at the West Point slum in Monrovia, mobs and groups were rescuing their loved ones from treatment centers barehanded. Health workers went unpaid, and they died in really significant numbers, now over 100 in Liberia alone. 
Some politicians tried to exploit the mood and tested the potential for creating public disorder. But in general, Liberian politicians were not highly visible at all during this crisis. Liberia has now had an estimated 6,600 cases and close to 2,800 deaths. Around August 20th, it became known in Monrovia that the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, was projecting a figure of 600,000 EVD cases by the end of this year. Later, a second projection became known, 1.4 million cases in the region by the end of January. Some of the UN peacekeeping mission's troop and police contributing countries started to wobble. Several indicated that they were considering pulling out their personnel. Burial teams were slow to become organized, and in late August, there were reports of dogs starting to eat the bodies of the dead in the streets. Ebola had massive behavioral effects on the business community. The airlines serving Liberia fell from 10 in June to 2 in August, and we thought those two would stop flying as well. The fears of expatriates and Liberians based outside the country were of isolation, getting stuck, a lack of health care, and social unrest. Many mining companies, rubber and timber growers, the concessions, historically the backbone of Liberia's economy, pulled out their expatriate staff and made plans to leave. UN mission in Liberia, UNMIL, met with some concessions and with members of the diplomatic community to urge them to stay and see it through. No one doubted the potential snowball effect of mass departures. ArcelorMittal postponed its planned expansion. The Peace Corps left the country. A, Liber a Liberian-American friend of mine who was working on Ebola was abruptly pulled out by her organization, and she told me it impacts Liberians psychologically to see people leave them, so reminiscent of past traumatic times. On August 6th, President Johnson Sirleaf declared a state of emergency and deployed the Armed Forces of Liberia, the AFL, to enforce curfews, containment, and quarantines, which also reportedly reminded some people of the war, especially when the Army then used live bullets against civilians near the West Point community in Monrovia. Shaki Kamara, pictured here on the left, subsequently died. Anmil was monitoring the response by the security sector that wasn't present when this occurred. The security sector has benefited from extensive international support and development, but remains weak. 80% of the country's police are based in the capital, and outside the capital they remain highly dependent on the UN mission. The fear, dread, panic, and isolation in August was palpable. The sense that Ebola was spiraling out of control generated the fear that Liberia would plunge back into chaos and violence. And the story of Liberia's past wars is in part a story of people profiting from chaos. The government was struggling on several fronts. Coordination, implementation, public and political engagement, identification of needs, and asserting the primacy of civilian authority. Any one of these issues touched on pressure points which could amplify the crisis. We saw food prices increase, 
health services decline, sporadic violence, some officials leaving the country, workers not being paid, the army on the streets, all the while the virus was spreading. In Lofa and in Monrovia, the Ebola treatment centers were completely overwhelmed. People were arriving at the MSF center, Médecins Sans Frontières, in Monrovia by every possible conveyance, and some of them died before they could be admitted. Some of them turned up dead in the taxis that brought them. After the West Point shooting, and under strong international pressure, the president foreswore further use of lethal force, and the army was largely pulled back from the national security response. This paradoxically calmed matters down. I think this was in some way a turning point, pulling the army back from the response. On September 12th, the New York Times reported that President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf had asked President Obama for the engagement of the U.S. military. She warned that without American assistance, the disease could send Liberia into the civil chaos that enveloped the country for two decades. And President Obama agreed. Now, 11 years after the end of the war, Liberia has neither an external military threat nor an active internal conflict. But several of the elements that helped Ebola spread and made it hard to curb are also those that keep the country fragile. Ebola didn't cause those problems, but has pushed them into stark relief. The country has moved forward massively since the war. After Charles Taylor's departure in August 2003, an interim government was installed. Liberia's partners went to work on helping restructure the country's finances and ministries. And in November 2005, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was elected president. From rock bottom, Liberia held two largely peaceful elections, collected two Nobel Peace Prizes, has seen debt forgiven to the tune of nearly $5 billion U.S. dollars. The African Development Bank reports that Liberia has benefited from over $16 billion U.S. dollars in foreign direct investment in iron ore, forestry, rubber, and palm oil. There are no extrajudicial killings, nor is there a practice of holding political prisoners. Monrovia is unrecognizable from just a few years ago. But in March 2013, The Economist memorably described Liberia as being at rest but not at peace. In particular, there's been very limited progress towards functioning social services, towards accountable systems, and towards mutual trust among its people. Tensions persist over the control of land and natural resources. Liberia remains a highly divided society with a small, dominant elite. Confidence in the government is low. Voters expect little of their elected officials other than patronage. Governance is personalized and highly, highly centralized. Politically, administratively, fiscally, everything happens in Monrovia. And nothing important happens without the president's personal engagement. Dr. Amos Sawyer is a political scientist who headed Liberia's interim government of national unity from late 1990 to early 1994. 
He refers here to presidential approbation being the single most valuable asset sought after in Liberian society. The word plunder, which is in his title, tends to recur in academic work on Liberia as well as in journalistic accounts. This is from the late journalist Tom Camara. He published this in March 2001. Again, referring to the plundering regime of Charles Taylor, but also to politics as a fast means to personal wealth. There's a great deal to plunder. The mining sector accounts for about 17% of GDP. Uh, in addition to iron ore, there's timber, oil palm, and rubber. There's offshore oil exploration going on now, already lucrative for the state, and gold is being mined commercially as well as artisanally. But Ebola has brought Liberia to a watershed, and I want to suggest that there is some silver lining to this terrible experience. With Ebola, the economy has tanked. From a growth rate of 8.7% in 2013 and projected growth of 5.9% this year, the projection is now down to 1% this year and 0% in 2015. Revenue projections are down 16%, expenditure projections up. The, the uncertain economy is itself going to be highly destabilizing. Now, the government is seeking support for an economic stabilization and recovery plan, including job creation, infrastructure, basic services, and agriculture. But even as support pours in now, it may melt away soon after Ebola's gone. Interest in Liberia, never very high, is likely to fall again, adding to pressures to ramp up private investment, which will require a lot of confidence. Partners have become more cautious. Recently, James Verdier, the head of Liberia's anti-corruption commission, pointed to corruption as a factor in the spread of Ebola. UNICEF data paint a dire picture of Liberian development. Less than half the population is food secure. Less than 5% of land is under permanent cultivation, with under 1% irrigated. Rice is the staple food, but 60% of the national requirements are imported. In fact, two-thirds of the country's entire food basket is imported. The smallholder farm sector has been neglected. 1% of households have piped water connections. And this was before Ebola. Liberia has experienced food shortages and price increases with uncertainty now around the next harvest. This slide shows new confirmed cases. And as you can see, Ebola numbers actually began to level off at the end of September. Um, we didn't necessarily know it at the time because the data uh, have been quite weak. There was strong support of partners for the expansion of Ebola treatment units in the country, for work among communities, for logistics and organization. The deployment of the U.S. military had both a practical and a psychological impact. By the beginning of October, there was a sense that the country had pulled back from the brink, but so much so that now the government is planning to hold midterm elections in December. The Liberian leadership complained loudly in August about the slowness of international 
response. And for a long time, there was very little introspection in this regard. Visiting the counties in August, I saw and heard a new attitude. I've lived in Liberia almost two and a half years, and I saw something I hadn't seen before. That was an attitude of self-help, of pride, of initiative. Many Liberians have written despairingly of Liberia's dependency syndrome. Now is a historic moment to move to making that history and build on some of the good, some of the unexpected good that Ebola has called forth. There are four areas that need to be built on. The first is to jumpstart decentralization and dilute the over-concentration of power and resources that are in Monrovia. Liberia's counties, which, by the way, used to officially be called the hinterland, uh, were left for months to fend for themselves against Ebola at its height. And yet, many county superintendents and county health teams rolled up their sleeves and got to work. They trained general community health volunteers by the hundreds. They sent them out to go community to community, door to door, and spread the word about Ebola. They had important but limited support from the UN, from local concessions, and from international NGOs. But they had next to no support from the center. The expression growth without development, I'm sure many of you know, was coined over Liberia. Now, finally, the country needs to strengthen access to basic social services. Inclusive development in Liberia could be the purest expression of justice, of reconciliation, of social cohesion for the country. The government is now seeking financing on the back of Ebola for many aspects of development which haven't advanced successfully in the past, but without improved delivery, without improved integrity, there's no reason to think that outcomes would be better now. So this has to go hand in hand with greater accountability. Partners have pledged over 300 million US dollars to fight Ebola, and the government is seeking a stimulus package now for agriculture, food aid, cash transfers, transport and energy, and job creation. But Liberia's donors and partners are also looking inward at what they now see as their failures uh, to insist on greater accountability. This is the moment when some of them want to press for a New Deal compact, and I'll show that in the next slide, with its provisions on strengthened public financial management. The fourth need is to deepen efforts to address Liberia's identity issues. There is lip service paid to rec reconciliation, but the country rarely feels like one common project for all its citizens. A disillusioned and unpoliticized population has few constructive outlets for engagement. Reconciliation initiatives, constitutional reform, they're a high priority for partners who largely fund them. They're not a high priority for the government. The sense of nationhood is frankly, not one that outsiders can fix. But I've seen more of it during Ebola than at any other time. Something needs to be done now to capture this and rally the population. 
These are the New Deal peace-building and state-building goals, and as you'll see, number five uh, addresses revenues and services. And when I've asked in the past what's new about the New Deal, I think it's number five that's really new in post-conflict environments because it elevates uh, managing revenue and increased accountability. So until these issues have higher priority, the UN peacekeeping operation remains there 11 years and counting. UNMIL is the first ever UN peacekeeping mission operating in an environment of viral hemorrhagic fever. Our first job was to keep our staff safe and reassured and confident. I had particular concerns about our uniformed personnel, almost 5,000 troops, about 1,500 police, whose capitals became very nervous and could easily have ordered them home. We uh, have all signed up for some level of uncertainty and risk in peacekeeping, but no one felt they had signed up for Ebola. So we instituted one process after another, travel rules, isolation, reporting requirements, reduced co-location, temperature, and visual checks. We concluded that UNMIL could manage this risk and we could continue to function. I also had particular concerns for our close to 2,000 national Liberian staff living in the communities, living in much closer proximity to Ebola. I learned a lot about just how much my Liberian staff relished bushmeat. This is bat soup on the right. UNMIL gave significant support from the start of this crisis in planning, advice, logistics, communication, and the UN was a reassuring presence for the country when it looked as if others might leave, fear reigned, and the government seemed paralyzed. We made very public that UNMIL wasn't going anywhere. Liberia's infrastructure is a huge challenge, especially combined with its protracted rainy season. UNMIL maintains long stretches of Liberia's roads, here in blue, red, and green. But UNMIL was and is in drawdown mode. We can't be the long-term solution for either Liberian road maintenance or Liberian stability. As UNMIL continues drawing down our troops, some observers point out that there is no military threat to Liberia. So why even have a peacekeeping mission there? But the fragility and the security threat remain. Too many Liberians think the country will relapse when, if and when the UN goes. We've pressed for a clear strategy that will enable Liberia to see UNMIL off with confidence and with pride. Meanwhile, Ebola's not over. Dr. Hans Rosling, who's pictured here, is in Monrovia now working with Liberian counterparts on improving data collection. He believes that the line of new cases flattened around mid-September. But even going from some 90 cases a day to the present 150 to 200 cases a week, we can't call that good. It's better, but it's not good. Ebola is not over until the last case, not just in Liberia, but in the region, is gone. And even then, it may come back, as Ebola has tended to do in Uganda and in the DRC. The African Union and the Cubans were quick to respond 
and send in health workers, trained health workers, which is still the greatest single need. And the harsher and harsher visa restrictions that are now being put on by many countries work directly against the ability to bring in health workers. Liberians themselves disagree about what will happen post-Ebola. Some say the waters will simply wash over this experience, leaving Liberia just as vulnerable to the next shock. That Liberia's elite will resist any real change in the rules of the game. Others believe that the country can never go back to being the way it was. Ebola has opened people's eyes in terrible ways, but also in transformative ways, ways that if pursued now can help cement Liberia's peace effectively and, we hope, irreversibly. Thank you. Thank you very much, Karen. Um, raised a whole range of issues there, um, but really important, I think, to just highlight that the Ebola issue is not just an issue of health. Um, we're going to take questions in groups of, say, two to three at a time. That's okay with you. We have a microphone there. Um, we're just, in fact, we've got two microphones. So we will just ask you just, if you wouldn't mind, just to introduce yourselves um, just as you ask the question. And just one thing I would uh, point out that I hadn't pointed out earlier on is that this session is being recorded, so will be available on a podcast later on. So we have at least one question. Oh, here we go. At least one question here. Why don't we have one question here? Meanwhile, the other um, microphone can go here, and then maybe we can go right to the back, and then I've... Spotted another two for the next round. I'm Bronwyn Manby, a visiting fellow here at the Centre for Human Rights. Um, two questions. One is the three countries most effective Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. Two of them are post conflict. Guinea is fragile for other reasons. How, I and mean, you'll be talking to your counterparts in the other countries, although there aren't peacekeeping missions in the same way, but how does the, the response of the three governments uh, differ? What, what are your observations about, about how they, the three have differed and which the particular challenges related to Liberia? And I'd be interested if you could say a bit more about the African Union response and how effective that's been. Um, there's been it seems that there's been more statements and less action. Um, I quite, oh, sorry. I'm a student here at LSE and I'm wondering what lessons that they've what lessons um, I guess health workers have learned in initial response or actually governments and what you guys would have done in hindsight um, when the initial outbreak started Yes, thank you. Uh, my name is Emmy. I'm a student at the School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, I just wanted to pick up on the theme that you spoke about in terms of uh, the opportunities presented by Ebola and um, to sort of just nitpick slightly on the UN response strategy. Um, the word sort of capacity building or the term capacity, capacity building gets beaten about a lot in the fragile states discourse. Um, do you think that we've missed a little bit of an opportunity to strengthen uh, the Liberian health system? Um, considering the sort of UN roadmap specifies strengthening surveillance systems, but no mention of uh, incre like increasing the capacity of healthcare systems. Thank you. Thanks, thanks a lot. 
Um, the, the question about the three countries is, is a really good one. I don't have a strong overview of all three, but what we've seen is that people are traveling back and forth despite the nominal closure of these borders. And uh, in Lofa recently, I was told, oh, the UN has to seal this border. Well, forget it. Uh, 700 kilometers there, 700 kilometers with Cote d'Ivoire, which you can wade across in the dry season. No one is ever going to seal these borders. Families married across across the borders. So if Ebola is present anywhere, it's going to travel um, back and forth. But this is also why there, there needs to be oversight over the responses in all three. There are policy issues that should be looked at across the borders. If one country has a significantly improved response, will people come to get treatment there? Will we see population movements? Should we be putting Ebola treatment units closer to borders uh, to, to catch that? Uh, there are, there's discussion in Liberia of uh, survivor benefits for Ebola survivors or for families who've lost someone or for those who um, have bodies disposed of properly. Well, you can't do that in one country, I would say, and not do it in the others. You're going to create some um, strange, perverse incentives. Uh, so I think the other question that's coming up now is uh, governments who have plan to direct millions of dollars to Liberia and are seeing the numbers improve, should they direct it somewhere else? So someone needs to be able to say that, to answer that question. Unfortunately, the links between the countries themselves are not as strong as they could be to discuss this type of issue. Uh, neither the Mano River Union nor ECOWAS have really stepped in to fill that gap. Uh, we're hoping that the uh, UN mission for Ebola response will be the one uh, to uh, be able to, let's say, drive traffic in terms of support to where it's most needed. There is an interesting discussion going on right now about where is the response likely to be weakest. Uh, Liberia, in a way, has had a head start. And Liberia is the only one of the three countries that has had Ebola rage through the capital. The others have had cases. In, in Freetown and in Conakry, but not the explosion that we saw in uh, Liberia. So uh, there are people who will say now, oh, we're really worried about Sierra Leone. And there are others who will say, no, Guinea is the place to watch now. Um, so someone needs, and of course Mali now has had a case, Cote d'Ivoire, there's been speculation about since August. It's quite incredible that they have managed not to have cases in, in Cote d'Ivoire. But the fear of spread is real. What the AU did that was so fine was to send health workers. They sent nearly 40 to Liberia, and they got to work. Some, I think some of them have, have come away infected, not in Liberia, but in, in Sierra Leone. And that was exactly the right response. At the moment, Ebola treatment units are being built faster than they can be staffed. And they need to have such meticulous uh, trained staff at the helm because the risks are so high. And you can't slack off even for... Uh, a minute. So that is the side of the AU response I've seen, and it was exactly what was needed, and, and fast, really fast. Uh, they arrived in, I think, beginning of September. So in hindsight, uh, 
I would say that several weeks were lost when no one saw the implications of having Ebola in the capital uh, spreading. No one saw how quickly this could go completely out of control. And the response still relied on lessons learned from remote locations uh, in, in other countries. Things could have moved faster than, uh, than they did. So uh, you know, now we know the big lesson is never, never let Ebola enter an urban center. That's, uh, that's crisis. Keep it out of capitals. Because of the money that's flowing in now, some partners, including UNICEF, are looking at whether they should actually put the bulk of their efforts into restoring the health system. It's remarkable that until now, we haven't had a huge secondary health crisis in the shadow of Ebola. Or if we have, we don't know we have. Um, vaccinations that were supposed to take place, measles and polio campaigns, haven't taken place. Uh, maternal mortality is almost certainly up. We just don't know. Uh, malarial deaths. You know, in the month of August, there was an assumption, and this is part of what the CDC figures were based on, that there was a dramatic undercounting in the numbers. But by September, people were starting to wonder if maybe there was an overcount, because basically everyone who died was being counted against Ebola, and most of those bodies weren't tested. In the locations where they started testing bodies, in some places they found that only 20% were Ebola cases. So all that work is being refined now, but both the partners and the government are saying, if you're going to put all this money into still working on Ebola, at least link it to existing health facilities so that it's not just a tent city that comes down afterwards, but it leaves something uh, behind. Great. Um, let's have another three. So we've got one there, and then two along from you, and then one in the front. Do you want a pen, by the way? There's one in the hand. Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks very much, Hilary Stauffer. I'm a visiting fellow at the Center for the Study of Human Rights. I lived in Liberia uh, five years ago and very much pre-Ebola. And I think it was in that brief uh, stable golden period, although things were still relatively underdeveloped. Um, and the, I, if you feel comfortable talking about it, I'd, I'd like some, uh, you to comment, if you could, on if you think there, there really will be a big impetus for governmental uh, reform and corruption, that one of the big things that was noticeable then is um, I was there training lawyers, and they had just built this fabulous new palace of justice, and all the judges and uh, prosecutors and senators and everybody were driving Porsche SUVs and earning $100,000 a year in a country where everybody else made $500,000. Um, and so I want, um, I've, I've noticed that uh, the president is, is purging some of her ministers or they're quitting. Uh, do you think any of these resources will be um, redeveloped perhaps to build up the health system or anything else? So then, just there. Um, thank you very much for the talk. Um, that was interesting and helpful, and I was especially pleased to hear that mention of the work of I'm a student of social psychology here, but I've spent more years working 
I've got rather too many frames for looking at this situation. Mm. I need to be brief. So what strikes me most of all is that the discrepancy between the level of threat and the level of global response. Ebola is a particularly nasty biological pathogen that has merged into a new ecological niche. Um, it needs only dense communities without adequate services and with a level of distress. Those are the conditions for human transmission. The effects of the virus are as also as a social and societal pathogen it itself creates the conditions needed for transmission. My great fear is that we will see the combination of Ebola and conflict affecting populations. And although we have the knowledge, the know-how, and the resources to deal with Ebola as it is now, I'm not sure that if we don't get our act together globally, we will manage to control it. WHO is already speaking of endemic Extremely unlikely we're going to eradicate transmission anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Ebola, to me, represents. Can I just ask you to keep it succinct as question. Yes. Ebola represents a species level threat. We've seen a global response that's, that's predominantly individualistic or at best nationalistic. The word global seems to have lost all meaning if we identified it, it, identified it as a species-level threat. Would we perhaps see governmental cooperation on the scale that's actually needed? Mm-hmm. Thank you. And if you pass the microphone, a couple along to your right. Gentleman with the hat, yes. Thank you. Um, good evening. Um, my name's Zinu. I'm from Sierra Leone, but I've been back at least a year or so. Um, I want to thank you, Karen, for your presentation and um, for your video that you're doing out there. The first um, speaker, I think, kind of covered really what I was going to touch on, which was really the level of corruption and mistrust that we have out there. Um, I, I really commend the world for coming to our rescue, although I think it was a little bit late. But that was also because of the mistrust in the government out there. It was highlighted in March. A lot of us called for areas to be quarantined. But, you know, they just don't listen to anyone. And that's the problem we have out there. It's, um, we need help, really, with good governance. We need education. We need schooling. All of these things since the war have actually been on the decline. Terribly. I mean, school teachers go for years without being paid. Um, the, the, the health service is non-existent. If you turn up at the hospital, you've got to pay for petrol for them to put a generator on. You know, we're worried about the drugs that you buy because a lot of them are fake. I mean, people have been just dying. Um, Ebola, I know everyone's really panicking now because the way it spread to now people. But as a Sierra Leonean, Ebola is not our real main problem. It's our governments. And um, we believe that the West, as much as you're, you're really helping us, we're worried about where these funds actually end up. 
It's like the lady said over there, you've got all these officials driving four-wheel drives, Mercedes and £18,000 Jeeps, and these are like ministers. Then you've got the deputy ministers. Then you've got the permanent secretaries. Then you've got all the girlfriends and, and all that. And I, I'm being very honest. It's getting to the point where the security aspect has got to be a main issue. Because the moment the UN, the US troops, the UK troops that we know down there leave, it's back to the old ways. Yeah, well, thank you very much. And that's given us three um, quite similar areas to, um, for Karen to comment we're on. Already in Sierra Leone, um, we're having journalists being arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. if you go on. President you know, ordered the arrest very of journalists. big yeah. campaign. The champions of free speech has been locked up just last week because he So, if not for the troops around that region, I can assure you, and it's simmering, it's bubbling, building up. Expecting to hear something. Thank you for that. Karen. Will there be a big impetus for reform, especially a push against corrupt practices? My impression is not internally. I'm surprised at how few... Oh, sorry, not internally, speaking for Liberia. I don't see so many voices of conscience. I don't see the movement pushing against corruption in in Liberia. Um, I was just going to read you something that USAID has written. Um, They describe a low-key, widespread ennui about Liberia's government. This is among the people. There is a cynicism because there has always been corruption and because corruption is still so prevalent the system may never attain the governance goals articulated by the president. So cynicism, ennui, uh, that's what I find domestically. People are more keen to become part of the system than to criticize it. There's very little ideology around, uh, uh, this is what I see in Liberia, I can't speak for, for Sierra Leone. And I think internationally, there has been a very high level of delight in Liberia as a success story. So the the push has been to see Liberia, to frame the narrative as a tremendous success story. And it has been in many ways. It could be so much worse at this point than it is. So the question is whether externally, I mean among partners, there is a willingness now to take this on in a more serious way. And even look inward to ourselves as partners and say, actually, never mind criticizing the government, we have to do business differently. We have to insist on uh, greater tracking, greater accountability, greater results from the money we're putting in. And it's a particular concern now because a lot of money is going to go into Liberia now. The international financial institutions have front-loaded payments that they were going to make in the next few years, they brought them forward. So the risk is rush of money now and then a drop off. And then where is Liberia when it starts to tail off? If the, if the private investors aren't back, then things will suddenly look really bleak. So 
I think this is why this is the moment to say, okay, we're seeing this from Ebola. Uh, we're seeing the things that haven't happened over the past 10 years, strengthening the health system, for example. Let's do it now. Let's use Ebola to change, uh, to change these systems. What, um, this was prompted by your question. At some point, probably in June, July, WHO announced that they anticipated the next high-risk country for Ebola to be Kenya. And within days, Kenyan airlines stopped flying to Monrovia, uh, one of the eight that stopped flying. Um, I absolutely agree. There are so many locations that, that would be very high risk, and the worst would be the combination of Ebola and conflict. I was on the phone last week with my colleagues in the uh, peacekeeping operation in Mali, where they now have, uh, have a case. If you uh, Google weaponized Ebola, you'll find there's a lot around that, and I wasn't going to go there um, this evening because I don't know anything about it. But that's a fear as well, that this will be deliberately used uh, to, to... I know that's not what you were talking about and not what I'm talking about, but some people are thinking actively about this aspect of Ebola, peace and security as well. International cooperation, uh, I, I expect it to be good, but it needs to be sustained. I think what's happened now is that everyone feels under threat. And some of the technical fixes that have not happened for decades, have not happened in almost 40 years of Ebola, vaccine, serum, uh, rapid test, more effective decontamination, I think they will happen now. Because everyone sees how easy it is to get on a plane asymptomatic and disembark with Ebola. So it could happen anywhere. Yeah, thank you. The, do you want to pass the microphone over? Just keep it very succinct if you don't mind. Just so we can squeeze in a couple more questions. We're not hearing the, the message no one is safe until we all are. And that really encapsulates the situation and might focus international minds on actually dealing with the problem where it is rather than putting up the barriers and the, the immigration controls. Mm. It, it absolutely has to be dealt with where it is. But I do see the global fear being extraordinary. So I think people have got that message that this has to be taken care of and the place it has to be taken care of is in those three countries right now. Okay, we've got one question. Hello, Madam there. Special Representative. I'm a librarian journalist currently with the uh, BBC Health Department uh, working on a program for Liberia called Kick Ebola from Liberia. I'd like to thank you very much for your work in Liberia. We Liberians in the diaspora, we are proud of the international community coming to our aid at this time. I just, got, I just have one question of several that I'm going to continue later with you after the program. I mean, after the program. I'd just like to find out what is the impact of Liberian diaspora response on the current uh, conflict. I, I am uh, public relations on the UK Liberia Ebola Tax Force. And what we're doing here in the UK is collecting donations that we send back home to Phoebe hospitals in Banga and other small clinics. 
Thank you. Lost track of the microphone. There's one just there. Thank you. Um, I just have a, one or two mini questions. Um, at the start of your presentation, you spoke about the mistrust um, that was had not just to the government, but the fear that they were spreading, um, they were actually spreading actively Ebola. Um, has that mistrust, not just of the government itself, but of the virus, where is that, has that changed a lot? Um, and secondly, you mentioned that maybe now with money coming in, that it might, might be the time for change. But then I, I'm not sure, but the 2013 GDP of Liberia is $2 billion U.S. dollars. And with investors, as you mentioned, fleeing the island, the, to the country, to what extent, how much money could they possibly be getting to really re cause a reform? And finally, um, I'm a human rights student. So if you could help me by helping me to locate Ebola with, within a human rights framework, not just with the economic and social aspect of the health, mm -hmm. but also with whatever political and civil liberties have been squashed. Thank you. And then we have one question over there, and then I fear we're running out of time, but perhaps the other two that I've spotted can maybe um, uh, catch Karen afterwards. Okay, I'll try to be quick. Um, I'm Jonah Lipton. Um, I'm a student here, and I've been living in Sierra Leone for most of this past year doing research. Um, I was speaking the other day to um, a friend of mine there who's a taxi driver, and he doesn't have any work there at the moment. Um, and he is trying to uh, find work as a driver for ambulance there. And he told me that Ebola is the only work right now. Um, so uh, in a context where, you know, with the, all the borders being shut uh, and the businesses shut and no money circulating, um, the element of the crisis that people have been complaining to me about the most and they're really most worried about is the, the kind of the economic side of it. Um, do you think there is a, a potential for um, allowing for more economic activity on the ground um, at the moment? Uh, it seems that the response has been, like you talk about, to really shut everything down. But that seems to um, be generating more kinds of problems and social unrest. And do you think there's a potential for starting some of these goals now or for just promoting grassroots kind of economic activity? Gosh, good luck, Karen, in about yeah, three thanks. minutes. <laughs> Thank you. So the impact of the Li Liberian diaspora response that we've seen is precisely the donations. And I can't give you chapter and verse on that, but I know that the diaspora has been very active in taking collections and sending things um, back, including vehicles, including ambulances, and that's been fantastic. Uh, the mistrust, I would say that through a lot of community-to-community -community work, house-to-house -house work, there is a broad acceptance now that Ebola is a real thing. And I was talking to uh, some civil society organizations working in, in Grand Bassa, just south of Monrovia, who said that they, they have to go deeper and deeper now into the county before they encounter denial and resistance. But at the beginning, it was everywhere. Uh, people made a thing out of not believing this, not, not trusting this. So I would say acceptance of the virus is completely changed. Uh, mistrust of the government, not significantly changed. 
I, I don't know the answer to how much money would be required to, uh, I, I think your question was to balance um, uh, the, the, the GDP to bring about reform. One of the biggest concerns around uh, human rights was the state of emergency that came into force 90 days ago, and a decision was due today. I don't know what the decision is. Maybe someone can Google it, whether to extend or not. Uh, some analysts said that everything the government did under the state of emergency, they, they could have done under existing health legislation. But of course, with that, there were movement restrictions. Uh, the army was called out, as I described, and there were possibilities to curtail uh, free speech. And there was a lot of concern, actually, that it would be used to potentially shut down media outlets. There's also been uh, concern linked to extreme stigmatization and exclusion of both Ebola sufferers and Ebola survivors. So there, there are children orphaned by Ebola. There's around 800 children affected by Ebola in Liberia who are finding it difficult to be accepted back in their communities. We also had a concern that hasn't really been borne out, that Ebola would become associated with particular groups because of their practices, their burial practices in particular. And we thought that if this happened, it would be a short leap to, a short hop to accusing those groups of having brought Ebola into the country. But uh, happily, that hasn't, uh, that hasn't happened. But there have been real concerns about how this might, uh, how this might go. Potential for more economic activity, absolutely. Uh, I don't think we're there yet. Where, where we are now is a strange uh, message. In a way, the government is very um, eager to show that it's on the downslope and things are so good that elections can be held in December. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of debate among the partners about is it or is it not safe to have an electoral campaign, to have the voting process. Does it send the right message? Or does it send the wrong message to essentially tell people we're back to, we're back to normal when we know it's not over and there are still flare-ups uh, happening? So we do need the business community to be back. Uh, they need to have the confidence to, to come back and resume activity um, because ultimately that's what um, the economy and employment are going to depend on, not on, uh, it's going to depend more on foreign direct investment than on development assistance. Well, thank you very much. I feel terrible sort of closing it up. We're just going to have to get the Centre for Study of Human Rights to invite you back again in a few months' time, Karen, to give us the second uh, half of what happened next. Just before um, everybody goes, um, you may be interested in some forthcoming uh, LSE human rights events. Um, we've got a particularly varied and busy schedule of events this term, culminating on the 11th of December, which is one day after the UN International Human Rights Day. 
Um, and this term, it, there will be a panel of expert practitioners led by Professor Christine Chinken of LSE, who many of you may already know, who will discuss the ongoing struggles for women's human rights worldwide. That may be the occasion, Karen. Um, in the meantime, you're invited to keep in touch via Twitter, Facebook, or subscribe to the mailing list, which you'll find on the website. But for now, perhaps we can just thank you, Karen, for coming and uh, speaking to us. Thank you.